0: Welcome to The Burnout Show, a weekly conversation with special guests who generously share their burnout stories with us. We also chat with health and wellness experts on how to best navigate burnout when you're in the thick of it, as well as how to avoid it returning. And now here's your host, Jess Jones. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Burnout Show. Today's very special guest is Dr. Rebecca Ray. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jess.
1: It's so nice to be here.
0: Pleasure to see you and to speak with you today. So, can you tell us a little bit about what you do?
1: Sure. I'm a clinical psychologist, an author, speaker, intentional business mentor, mum, wife, toddler tamer, (laughs) dog parent, (laughs) and very reluctant cook. (laughs) That would be the summary. Yeah. Very busy, sounds like. Well, no, it's not busy because it's not busy by choice. So I do a lot of things, but within those roles, there are lots of things I also don't do because I have assistants and a team. And thanks to my own history of pushing my own limits and finding my own boundaries
0: mm.
1: and crossing those boundaries way too far and coming back from those boundaries, I have very much learned how to approach life from a place of ease and flow rather than a place of desperation and overachievement, which I have a tendency towards, and constantly having to do all the things. So I know exactly what you're saying from it sounds busy, but my experience of it is no longer that. Yes, there's spikes when I'm at the end of a project or something, like if I'm at the end of a book deadline that I've not managed well. (laughs) is my experience with my most recent book. I then spent six weeks kind of working 12 hours a day um, writing the book. Wow! But normally it's fairly consistent in terms of my energy output.
0: That's fantastic. So obviously through your previous experiences, you are now in a really comfortable place where you are in control of what it is you do and what you put your energy and time into and how much of that you put in.
1: Yeah, it's very intentional.
0: Mm. Sounds fantastic. Can you share a little bit more about what happened in your past to kind of propel you into this position that you're in now where you've had to make these choices and set some boundaries?
1: Yeah, it's kind of twofold. So it started in my teens when I left school and went straight into studying psychology at uni. And in that same year, I started learning to fly. My grandfather, who was one of my favorite people on the face of the planet, he had his private pilot's license. I used to go flying with him and I loved it. And one day he said to me, you know, flying is as easy as driving a car. And I was like, righto, if it's that easy, I might do it. It turns out that's bullshit. (laughs) For someone like me that is not mathematically minded or visuospatially minded, it was actually really challenging. And I got my private pilot's license I really enjoyed sharing something with him that no one else in the family shared. And from then on, it just grew, but so did my anxiety. So I actually found myself committing to something that felt like a challenge. I, I quite like doing things that other people don't do. And back in the late 90s, aviation was a very unusual career for a woman and not very unusual, but certainly more unusual than it is today. And so I thought maybe I could just prove I can do it. I'm not sure who I was proving it to. I think it was ultimately myself, but what happened was I got my private pilot's license and I thought by then I would finally stop feeling so anxious flying. So I could fly really well. I wasn't actually scared of the act of flying. I was scared of doing something wrong that would kill someone. (laughs) Yeah. And so I never took um, passengers that weren't pilots. And I thought, well, the way to overcome this is to face it. So I'm just going to do more flying. And so (laughs) having a tendency to take things a bit too far back then, I ended up getting my commercial pilot's license, my instructor rating, my multi-engine rating, a night VFR rating, and an instructor rating so I could teach other people to fly. This is hundreds of hours of training, and I still never took another passenger that wasn't a pilot. And mm-hmm. I got to the end of it where driving to the airport, despite the fact that I was now commercially trained, I would feel like vomiting. So the anxiety mm-hmm. was such that it was literally overtaking me. and yeah. I had not been able to read the line between what is anxiety just as a result of something being outside your comfort zone and therefore tackling that by action versus anxiety because you're doing something that is violating your non-negotiables on a daily basis. And my non-negotiables that I didn't realize at the time were things like routine. (laughs) (laughs) Actually a really boring person.
0: I'm the same. I get it.
1: Yeah. I like going to bed at the same time. I like coming into the same office, the Mm. same computer, and doing using the same sets of skills, but in different ways. But my days are fairly predictable because I like them that way.
0: Yeah.
1: Not predictable in terms of what happens in them, but in terms of where I am and what I'm doing. When you're flying, things are inherently different every single day, and there are so many non controllables. Mm. And so. I got to a point where I was about, I think I was about 21 by this stage and I had to face the fact that I was making myself sick and I felt like the biggest failure ever because I had spent money of my parents and my grandfathers who had also invested in my flying training when I decided I wanted to make a career out of it and leave psychology and go and fly for Qantas or something like that. And I sat down at the table with my parents and said, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to fly anymore. And Mm. I felt ashamed and fraudulent and just the biggest sense of failure. I can't, that's the first biggest failure that I felt career-wise at that point. And it was incredibly difficult to back up from that. So I'm, I went straight back into psychology, again, proving something, proving that I guess I was trying to prove that that I'm still worthy. If I walk away from flying, even though I'm not doing that anymore, if I make something out of psychology, then I must be worthy. So I was very much forcing myself to, I guess, be on this path that was about a, a very deep worthiness wound And rather than anything authentically directed, even though I loved psychology, at this point it was still about proving something. And so I ended up spending four years in a very small town in Australia um, studying. And in that time I drove, I worked three days a week in a private mental health hospital and I drove two hours to uni on for another two days a week. So I drove two hours. I did clinical placement all day. I did three hours class that night, stayed overnight, did the same the next day, clinical placement during the day, and then three hours class that night, and then drove two hours home and then wrote my thesis, my doctorate on the weekends. So that took me three years. So I was doing that for four years. And um, yeah, you're catching your breath as I tell this story, right? It's exhausting. Yeah, And then I thought, well, at the end of that, I've got my doctorate, surely I'm worthy. So I throw myself into clinical practice. And for a while I was, I did feel okay. I did feel like I'm doing the thing now. Like I was clinically qualified. I had a lot of clinical experience. So finding my feet with clinical practice in my own private practice wasn't too difficult. But then, (laughs) because I'm not a fast learner, (laughs) let's face it. What happened was I started to have this attachment to the productivity in my calendar. It was not a conscious attachment. I didn't, I didn't consciously say when my calendar has 45 patients in it a week, then I'm doing okay. Mm. It just happened. And I didn't stop it. And I much preferred to say yes to clients so that I felt like I was seeing them when they needed to be seen, and say yes to my referrers, so that I was serving my referral base to my referral base as best as I could, so that they could rely on me, rather than look at any kind of level of energetic distribution that wasn't working for me. And so, at thirty-five, the ripe old age of thirty-five, about thirty-five years prior to the retirement plan I had. I had in my head I had to walk away from clinical practice
0: Mm
1: -hmm. and uh, it got to a point where in 2015 in January I had lunch with a friend of mine a psychologist friend of mine and I told him that I had done all these things to try to fix it. I'd scaled back my days. I'd scaled back the number of clients I'd taken breaks, but nothing was working. I still felt like, you know, I still had night before work blues every night before work. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, if you don't stop, your body will stop for you. Yeah. And he also said to me, Because I basically said, well, I don't know what the hell I'll do. I'm not qualified to do anything else. I, I don't know what to do with my life. And he said, sometimes you need to create an empty space before you create what will fill it. That lunch was on the 15th of January, 2015. And my practice was closed on the 30th of January, 2015. So I closed eight years of practice in two weeks. Wow and just walked away. And I took 18 months off and dabbled a little bit online, with some online stuff, and then I went back towards the end of 2016 because we needed the money. And I went back in a very different way. I only worked two days a week and only a couple of clients a day, maybe three, sometimes four, and it didn't work. <laughs> I just have to shake my head because I thought, perhaps I'd be better at that point. Perhaps my experience of it would have changed. And oh, I'm just, once I was in the room, I was fine. So you put me in front of a client and something happens, you know, there's this unconscious competence and I can just do it. It's not, it's not hard. And the connection comes and I actually really value the connection in the moment. Yes. But outside of that, I was just not myself. And so the last client I saw was the day before I gave birth. And I had Bennett in March, 2018, and I've never been back since. So mm. that was the line in the sand for me where in my head I said, I can't do this again. And yeah. I basically kicked my butt to say, well, you need to create something mm. for yourself. I kind of started started creating it. I built a Instagram page called Happy Habits, and I'd written a program called Happy Habits on techniques that are about flourishing rather than problem-based psychology stuff it didn't really feel like me and it didn't do well so I actually spent a whole lot of money that I never got back on that mm-hmm. and the Instagram page itself though was the thing that did work so a publisher approached me via Instagram would you believe I thought it was spam yeah, she DM'd me on Instagram and yeah. said, "Would you like to publish a book?" And I was like, "Is this bullshit?" I showed my wife, and I'm like, "I think I'm being spammed." And I googled her on the internet because her name was really unusual, and I thought, "Oh, this is spam for sure." Yeah, no, she was from a publishing wow. house in New York. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> it was legit. I said, "Can you call me because I need to know this is legit?" So we actually yeah. had a phone conversation, <laughs> and um so in 2018, my book, my first book was also published, but you don't make money out of gift books. Like unless you're Liz Gilbert publishing amazing self-help and Brene Brown, you, you don't live off books and book royalties. And so my profile wasn't big enough to demand some kind of advance that could keep me going. And so I was in a position where I was like, honestly, what the hell am I going to do? And that's when I just decided to start. I just decided to take the messages that I told clients in therapy, messages that I lived by myself mm-hmm. and was able to capture an audience who just resonated with message I guess messages about psychological concepts, but in layman's terms, sometimes poetic terms. Mm. And I've found my feats working with really brave women who are out to make an impact on the world with their own businesses. But it's taken a long time to get here. So for a time, I didn't even really understand what my message was. Mm -hmm. I initially thought my audience was everyone, you know, in air quotes, like who wouldn't be able to benefit from psychological techniques. Mm -hmm. But I've moved to the point where working with women who often are in the same boat as I was and need to reestablish their entire life or career because they've been burnt out and then shining a light on what is possible in the entrepreneurial space where you can have full control over what you're doing on a daily basis has been incredibly fulfilling and rewarding. So mm. I didn't
0: plan to be here, but that's how I got here. <laughs> kind of an awesome way to get here though.
1: Oh, and I honestly have never been this happy. I've never yeah. been, I've never been happier. And my happiness is as a result of the devastation, you know, yeah. devastation about my flying, devastation about having to leave my patients. Mm. I've told this story a number of times now, but there's only, it's only recently that I've been able to tell it without crying because there's still that pull. You know, I can still, when I take myself back there, sometimes you can really want to continue doing something even if you can't, you know? Yeah, yeah. So... But now the work that I'm doing, you know, it's amazing to be able to sit here and say, I do work that doesn't feel like work.
0: Yeah. And what a beautiful thing. Pretty good job. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Can we rewind a little bit to the self-worth part? Because I know it's quite common in many people that they push and they strive and they create these big dreams and big goals because they have something to prove. And oftentimes it is a self-worth piece that they're trying to say, I'm good enough, Mm -hmm. I can do this, I am enough. And I think sometimes it comes from, you know, childhood where they're trying to be seen by perhaps parents or family members or loved ones and other times it's a feeling of just not being enough to fill whatever shoes it is that they've stepped into. So over this time and through the work that you've done, Have you been able to identify where that gap was for you, why you felt the need to to prove yourself so much?
1: First of all, I think it's human DNA. So Mm -hmm. I don't, I've never met a client or personally anyone in my life that I've crossed paths with that doesn't have some kind of um, worthiness wound. And I think that's wired into our DNA because of our desire to belong. Anything that threatens our sense of belonging, including our own perception that we're not measuring up with the clan, can be a threat ultimately from an ancestral point of view to survival. Mm. And so I'm not going to say I'm over it or that there is a way to get over it because I think it's important to accept that from a psychological perspective, we are biologically wired this way Mm. to constantly want to make sure that we're doing our part so we don't get rejected or killed by the clan. even though yeah. it's not like that in 2021. But for me, in terms of any experiences that reinforce that, I think it was personality based for me. So mm. I was a child who always excelled um, academically. I was just a kid that naturally fit the school system and mm could shine in the school system. And there was nothing, you know, it's not like I didn't get seen because I did. I I exceeded, I overachieved. I remember overachieving from grade one. Mm-hmm. So in, and it wasn't conscious, like it was just doing well academically. And therefore that's what you're rewarded for, you know? Yeah. I think when it comes to flying, I had chosen something that was so far outside my comfort zone in terms of my natural skills and abilities that I intuitively knew that if I had if I continued with that as a career, it would be soul destroying for me. Yeah. And so I just ignored my intuition really. I ignored all the physical symptoms of anxiety mm-hmm. <laughs> and I ignored uh, I ignored myself because of that need to, to prove. When In my 20s, when I had my clinical practice and I was doing my studies, that I think that became about, it just was easier to say yes rather than no. So that was a boundary thing for me. Yeah. So now I'm exceedingly good at saying no because I learned where that boundary was. But sometimes I'm too good at saying no. So I need to stop and go, hold on a second, is this a possible yes? Because my first answer is often, no, I don't need anything more on my plate at this stage.
0: What an incredible place to be in to be able to say I'm really happy with where I am, with what I'm doing, with the people I'm working with, with my personal life and the ability to be able to say this is enough. That's huge.
1: Yes, it is enough. And my gratitude is huge for where I am, particularly when I reflect on where I've been. But that's not to say I'm not still striving. I think the balance that I've found now is how to strive and how to still dream and have goals while resting in a state of abundance rather than scarcity. So if my energy is not available, then it's not available. I don't make that any longer about who I am as a person and my sense of worth. I don't look at my level of productivity to then go, well, I'm okay as a person because I was really busy this week.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you've clearly done a lot of work on yourself, you know, along this journey as well to be able to get to where you are, to be able to say, like you've said, like, I want to be able to thrive and I want to be able to dream but I'm not going to do it and risk losing your energy and, and your time and, you know, yourself along the way. Yeah,
1: exactly. I'm not, I am going to do it. I am going to dream and I am going to set goals, but it's conditional on doing it my way. And that means that some days there are naps. <laughs> it Absolutely. means Some days there is nothing on. And it also means some days I launch things and then I pull them like I did last year. So I've just launched my flagship program, and we just had our first retreat yesterday, which was so beautiful. A group of women participating in my program, Intentional Business, the experience for women entrepreneurs, and it's a 12-week experience at this point. It may get extended in the future, but I attempted to launch it in October last year. This is how slow I am at learning. Here we are, (laughs) nearly a decade after I left my clinical practice
0: the first time. As long as you're learning from it, that's the most important
1: yeah. part, right? Yeah. Not quite, but I threw it out
0: there. <laughs> I'd spoke to my integrator, Leanne, and I,
1: we we're having this conversation. We're like, well, if we're going to test a product, October is really the latest we can do this in the year. We can't launch a three-month experience and start it in November or December. I don't think people are going to go for that, particularly not in 2020. And so I was like, yeah, okay, but I've still got to write this book and like I've really got to write it. Like I just had the outline at that point and had a book deadline and we launched it publicly. So there were social media posts. It went out to my list. And three days into that launch, I felt it immediately. So when the first post went out, I felt wrong. And then by day three, that wrong feeling had gotten more intense and I I was just like, no, I'm, I'm scrapping the whole thing. And so I think that's one of the most... <laughs> Popular posts I've ever done in the, for the entire 12 months of last year was the post where I said, I got it wrong. I thought I could launch this program and do all the things, but I can't. Mm. So we're pulling the program. If you're interested, here's the wait list, but it won't be happening until next year. I've got to go write a book. And in fact, you won't see me on social media for the next 30 days either. You won't see newsletters that we know, podcast episodes. I'm just stepping back from everything. And people, resonated so much with that, that it was almost like I had people commenting that that was their permission to do something similar in their own business. Mm-hmm. That they felt like the, you know, the vehicle of a business. So there's repurposing content that's constantly happening and planning new episodes and then publishing existing episodes and then promoting those episodes. It just never stops. So for me to publicly say I'm stopping the it's lot, okay. mm-hmm. yeah, was... I think, a public permission for other people to kind of reconsider where they haven't hadn't allowed themselves to stop.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Well, Rebecca, finally, for someone listening today that is going through burnout themselves or trying to pull themselves out of that slump, what's one piece of advice you would give them to walk away with today? The
1: first thing I would say is it's unique to everyone. So... Mm-hmm. I'm not usually a fan of blanket advice, but I do understand how podcast and I, I'm going to talk based on my experience, but I also want to say, first and foremost, please honour your own experience. It's really important to listen within because you have more wisdom and your intuition knows more than what you're probably giving it credit for when you're in a state of burnout. The second thing I'll say is that you know what, sometimes you've got to bash your head against a brick wall enough times until you get a really bad headache. And if you're like me, you're stubborn, you don't listen to other people who say, you might be headed for burnout, you know, (laughs) no, I'll be fine. Thank you very much. So sometimes you just have to cross your own boundaries enough times that you then realize that the only option is to step back and do it differently. Mm. But my actual piece of advice would be even when you don't know what is on the other side of it, it's okay to stop and then figure it out as you go. Um, and I say this as someone whose first answer would have been, but what about the money? Mm. What have, how do I live if I have to leave my job when there's bills to pay? And I'll be completely honest and say I ate my mortgage. So mm. I lived off equity in my home. I didn't. And it's, that was absolutely not a smart financial decision and yet I'd do it a million times over because it saved my life. Yeah. So in terms of the possibilities available, please explore every single possibility you've got to then be able to make a different decision about what your future has to be tomorrow.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been wonderful chatting with you. It's been a pleasure talking to you too, Jess. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for joining us. If you're suffering from burnout or want some tips on how to avoid it, join our Facebook group, The Burnout Club Community. If you've gotten something out of today's episode, we'd love your review. Simply click the link in the show notes to share your thoughts. Until next time, go gently.